you have a question about your home? Call Ken the Contractor. A few weeks ago, you were talking about cat urine, and you had said professionals use white vinegar. Do you know how much you would use of vinegar to water? We built a home 20 years ago and thought we were putting in the best windows at that time, but ever since we've had leaking of air around and under the window. Is there anything we can do? I recently had a water softener installed. Okay. And my daughter now complains that the water doesn't taste as good. Do you have a question? Question about your home inside or out? Call Ken the Contractor. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another hour with Ken the Contractor. Ken Patterson is Ken the Contractor, and he's here weekends at this time taking your calls, answering the questions that are important to you, today's homeowner. Don't forget, a house is what you build, a home is what you make it. You can always reach Ken at 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. And email your questions to our website. That's Ken the Contractor. Dot com. Well, at least based on the calendar, it's springtime, folks. And for many of us, that says we're ready to look at finding the garage floor again, maybe a place to park the car. How about a place to put some of those things inside those closets that we've been sitting in the bedroom or the family room or down in the basement that we really need to have access to? I don't know why, but it tends to be around spring when things start warming up that we think about these, even though to me it's a good indoor project for the winter when we're stuck inside those walls. But I'm no different than the rest of you. This is when we start taking a look at it. What I want to remind you of when you're saying, I'm out of space. I have too much stuff. I have too many things. Many of them I need to keep at my fingertips, so I can't go put them in a mini storage somewhere or I can't put them in an outbuilding in another location. I want to remind you that you have space you have already bought and are paying for that you don't use, and that's the cubic space in your house. Now, when we get into spring cleaning every time from year to year, we discuss this, and I want to talk about it one more time with some new features and some new possibilities for you. But again, remember the cubic space in your home, that's going vertical, that's not your floor contact area, is the cheapest space you have. And as I remind all of you, it's the most underutilized areas that we have in our home. And now that you're listening and I have your attention, I want you to think about this. You may have a pantry in the kitchen that has only two or three shelves when easily it could accommodate four or five shelves based on how high you stack products and the boxes that you put in there. You may have bedroom closets that only have a single hang shelf, one row across the back, or if it's big enough that it's a walk-in, you may still only have one. When you can do so many things in that closet space that you could probably add four times the amount of clothing, shoes, both folded and hanging, than you have right now and free up dresser drawers or other seasonal storage spaces that you may have around the house. You may have a garage that has tools sitting on the floor from yard rakes to even hand tools. Folks, you can go vertical with those and still get one or two, depending on the size of your garage, cars in there and free this space up. Years ago, we didn't have a lot of options. These were homemade items that we would do with framing systems, especially in our garage area. But today, there are more options than we possibly can think about. Companies like Closet Made, Schulte, and Ultimate all build garage storage systems. Closet Made and Schulte also are specializing in interior closet facilities, meaning you've got drawers that hang on sliding racks, you have shoe racks, you have multi-hang uh, shelves and uh, hangers, for clothes, whether it's skirts or overcoats, for seasonal items, it doesn't matter. Ties, you name it. Anything in our wardrobe, they build something to store it and very convenient. They also manufacture systems today, for especially for your children's bedroom. You're saying, 
well, I've got uh, a three-year-old, and the clothes are quite short. Obviously, he or she can't reach the hanging clothes. It might be at five feet above the floor, but they have systems that change as they grow. So you spend money one time, and you add components, or you simply adjust those components. And if you go to closetmade.com, you're going to see some examples of that where there's a rail system that you can start out for a youngster. You simply move that rail. Once you install it one time, you adjust that rail as they grow in height. You can also add folded clothes storage, which are drawers that hang and slide and move back and forth. You can adjust for hanging clothes, for shoes, all kinds of organizational features that allow you to spend money one time and add to it as the child grows or as your needs change within that house. And this is true for any storage area. I don't want you to just think that I'm talking about your bedroom, but I want you to think about linen closets that you may have in bathrooms or in hallways. Are they underutilized? Do you need space to change from, say, winter uh, bed clothing? Uh, uh, when you're looking at blankets, those type items, you want to get rid of them, put them somewhere in the spring and the warmer months, where do you put them? So all of these spaces are existing areas that you've paid for that I promise you you're not using to the greatest potential. When you think about storage space most of our minds tend to go to let's put a building out back and that's great for a lot of things i'm not going to discourage that but it's not the only solution i also want you to think about your attic space and your basement space now i get so many calls about basement issues that deal with moisture uh, and mold and mildew that develops if you happen to have a basement that's prone to moisture problems you certainly don't want to be storing clothing down there or papers or anything else because it's going to soak up that moisture and it too will mold over time then you're going to have a huge issue there because in most cases mold doesn't come out of clothing at least not very well in my experience so i want you to think about that now attic space is a different story some of you live in areas that have walk upstairs to your attic space and it's great to store certain products there if the attic trusses are designed for that if you have a floor area but you also have to be cautious about the temperature certain things pictures and you you look at old uh, documents and various things you may want to preserve you don't want to put in attic space that's exposed to extreme temperatures some of us live in environments where we may have 120 degrees difference between our coldest day and our hottest day and that's not great for products that we store there so we have moisture issues in our, many of our basements we have temperature issues and we can also have humidity issues in our attic areas so you think, need to think about how you use that space and what you put there. I really want to drive you back to the many storage systems, and that's not just shelving, but systems that are available today and encourage you to take a look at them. Again, I named three of them for you, Closet Made, Schulte, S-C-H-U-L-T-E, and Ultimate, U-L-T-I-M-A-T-E, which is a system especially made for garage storage. Now, others of you also say, I've got bicycles. I have various other items that take up space in the garage. I've got a canoe. I'd love to be able to park my car in there. That takes up floor space. These companies also manufacture pulley systems that attach to the structure in the garage ceilings. Some are electrically controlled. You're saying, well, I really don't want to be pulling on a rope and hoisting this up. Use that space. I want you to think about every area that you have. And a lot of you listening right now have garage ceilings because that floor is dropped down from your finished floor. That garage ceiling may be at 10, 12 feet. So you have a lot of unused cubic space even above your cars, and it still allows you to use the space as it was intended. Storage is not what it used to be, just setting something on the floor or the two or three shelves that are in most of the homes in these areas. And I want you to think about it and be happy as you go through that spring cleaning because you really can't organize and you can make things work a whole lot better for you. You know the one I've always been looking for? You're familiar with the Green Hornet? 
Indeed. They used to, they used to have, you know, out in Britt Reed's garage, it would clamp onto the vehicle and flip over and his car that he used to drive to work would flip over and all of a sudden the Black Beauty would be there. Any systems like that I can utilize? I don't know that I've seen any quite that futuristic, but, you know, they're probably in the offing. In fact, I've got some things we'll talk about later on that is very futuristic that you won't be able to imagine. But when it comes to that, I haven't seen it yet. But I will tell you, just in 10 years, the transition in storage facilities and how much money manufacturers mm-hmm. are putting into it is phenomenal. Because they recognize, like like I'm telling you, that that cubic space is so important to us, that storage space. And for a lot of folks, they can't manufacture any more space like land. You know, once it's there, it's there. Coming up in just minutes on this hour of Ken the Contractor. Uh, coming up, Ken is going to be talking about door sizes and location. Do they really matter? And is there such a thing as self-healing concrete? Coming up on Ken the Contractor. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Thanks for joining us this weekend. Every weekend at this time, Ken Patterson is here. And he's answering the questions that are important to you, today's homeowner. You can always reach Ken at 800-614-2975. And don't forget about our website. That's KenTheContractor.com. There's a lot of useful information for you there. Uh, you'll see all the email questions that are forwarded to Ken and also to our mailbag editor, Aaron Yoder. You'll find the answers to those questions ranging from roofing, electric, insulation, decking, energy efficiency, accessible or green living, a universal living, heating, masonry, all right there online at KenTheContractor.com. Plus, you can also go to KenTheContractor.com and listen to podcasts of recent programs. Time now for this week's edition of In the News. Weekly Ken brings you products, trends, tips, and services that are important for you to make informed decisions about your home maintenance purchases, remodeling, and new construction. And this week is something that's beyond most folks' imagination, and that's concrete that cures itself. No pun intended, because concrete has to cure once you pour it, But we're talking about hairline cracks. Wouldn't it be wonderful in your basement wall right now if you've got a formed wall or you've got a slab or some other structural items and you see these hairline cracks and simply by it receiving moisture from rain or the sprinkler system or groundwater, it could heal itself much like a a scratch or a cut does on our hand? Well, folks, I want to tell you this article that comes to us out of uh, the Builder magazine this week talks about research that's been taking place, and some of this has been perfected. It's not in the marketplace yet, but for the past several years, both scientists and engineers alike have been trying to figure out how to reduce the damage to our buildings that's caused by cracks in concrete. And concrete's going to crack, folks, based on expansion and contraction. We do all we can to tell it where to crack and how to control it, but it's an inherent problem with concrete. Now, there have been numerous approaches to the problem, including a form of concrete that was developed back in 2009 by the University of of Michigan's Advanced Civil Engineering Materials Research Lab, which uses microfibers that allow the concrete to bend. And the dry concrete absorbs moisture from the air and softens to fill tiny cracks. Again, it's like healing a wound or a cut on your hand or your arm. In 2010, at the University of Rhode Island, they embedded a micro-encapsulated sodium silicate healing agent into concrete. When tiny cracks form, these capsules rupture and release the healing agent that reacts with calcium hydroxide, which is naturally present. You don't have to write all this down in concrete, and it forms a healing compound. So I just wanted to give you the gist of where scientists are going today. When we think a lot of these about building products, whether it's lumber or concrete or our windows, I don't think 
truly we realize how much research and time and effort constantly goes into making these products better and how the industry and the manufacturers recognize there are problems that are weather-related, that's age-related to certain items, and how can they make those better and last longer and perform better for us not only in the short run but also in the long run. And in 2012, a Delft University of Technology in the Netherlands developed what they call a bioconcrete that actually is a material that contains granules of bacterial spores and calcium that when the spores are activated they act by rainwater, it actually fills these cracks and bonds them together again. So that's just a third example. What I want you to do is pay attention to your concrete suppliers, to your contractors, and to folks when they talk to you about new technology and things that you think are old, again, lumber, windows, glass, concrete, that they really are onto something in many cases. You want to find out more about it because if you want to build the best you can, spend your dollar as wisely as possible, you want to ask them always about the latest products that are available to go in your home, your addition, or your replacement items when you're doing maintenance around the house. And this is just one example. We'll see it eventually. I'm satisfied with that. Concrete that cures itself. Phone lines are open at 800-614-2975. Let's go to the phone lines. It's Eddie who joins us right now. Hi, Eddie. You're on the air with Ken the Contractor. Um, I have a refrigerator that's about five or six years old, and all of a sudden the ice has started to taste funny and smell bad. I replaced the... Um, um, Got a filter in it, an inline filter? I replaced that, and it still has... A funny taste and smell, you drink water and stick it and it tastes fine. But when you uh, use it for ice and once the ice starts melting, it doesn't taste good. All right, have you completely dumped out uh, all of the ice, turned the ice maker off, allowed it to stop for a while, and then thoroughly cleaned the ice maker? Because we've had to go through that. And cleaned it good and took all the ice and let it melt. I did not let it sit for a while. Okay. The only other thing that I'd recommend, and again, this is where I've seen some problems, we've, we've had some experience with this, is you may need to go in and, and change the water line that's going to the ice maker itself. Is this, is, does this have a, a typical plastic line on it? Some are copper, but most are plastic. Yeah, it's plastic. Okay. I'd take that line off, and I'd check everything from the line all the way through. But over time, I've seen things we don't want to talk about build up in these lines it's 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 chlorinated if you're on domestic water so it's uh you know it kills the bacteria but but you get a funky taste and even a funky odor about it and clean the clean the ice maker as well it's a well water so it's not doesn't have chlorination in it okay well in in that case you may definitely want to replace that line and clean things out on a bleach using a bleach solution but don't drink the bleach solution. You may want to run it all the way through the system as you can. Be sure it's thoroughly cleaned, every, all the components you can get to, and then uh, start it up and go, uh, go from there. We've had to do that. We've seen older facilities that have had nobody's spent time on maintenance or they've had some water issues, and we don't think a lot about it. It's just sometimes it's a sign of things getting stagnant in there. It just needs to be cleaned. All right. Thanks Thank for the you. call. Eddie, thanks. We do appreciate your call. Don't forget, you can always reach Ken at 800-614-2975. That's a contact number. Of course, emails go to the website, kenthecontractor.com. And Gladys raises a question that apparently I don't deal with very often. She writes to us from Lorraine, Pennsylvania. Said we have a central heating system with a humidifier. It's run all winter. You often talk about service for your heating and air conditioning system, but what's needed for a humidifier? The system was in the house when we bought it, and we really don't have a clue about maintenance. We just keep using it each winter. 
Well, Gladys, I'm glad you raised the question. And for you and others, if you don't think I address these certain items periodically, send me an email or give me a call, and I promise you I'll pay some attention to those particular items. You can just give me suggestions if you like. But, Gladys, the humidifier, there are different types that go with our systems. And the fact that you have a central system tells me it is built into the ductwork. You may have one that has a drum inside it that looks just like that. It's a complete cylinder, and it has a pad or a filter all the way around it. You may have one where the water just flows from the top through the bottom, goes into some type of a media or filter pad, and that moisture is pulled into your air system as it distributes heat throughout the house, and it raises that moisture level. There are also a few other types. Some of these have floats in them. Some of them have reservoirs. Some do not. But there are maintenance items that all of us should pay attention to. Now, first off, you certainly want to be sure that the filter media, the pad, the drum, whatever, is replaced from time to time. They do become filled with the minerals that's in our water, almost a a calcium-type deposit. They don't work very well after that, and in some cases can actually clog the system and cause it to stop working altogether. That's probably the biggest single item, but if you have moving parts, such as a motor that turns the drum, then you also want to be sure that that is working. I would have this serviced at least once a year. With your normal heating and cooling service side, be sure you ask your sales or your service rep to deal with that, that the drain lines are open, that the supply lines coming in are proper, they're working as they should be, and if you happen to have a float underneath your your system in your basement or wherever, be sure that overflow or float switch is working also. And check your humidistat, because if that's not working, you don't have the humidity that you want in the wintertime. And I have seen humidistats go bad. So have them check this just as a normal part of your heating and cooling system. You may have to make a special request, but be sure that's part of it. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Quick time out and then back with more. Welcome back. This is Ken the Contractor. I'm Jim Britt along with Ken Patterson, Ken the Contractor. Ken is here every weekend at this time answering the questions that are important to you. Today's homeowner, you can be part of the program a couple different ways. Email your questions to Ken at KenTheContractor.com. Give us a call at 800-614-2975. Also, you can friend us on Facebook at Ken the Contractor and follow us on Twitter at Ken Answers. We've got an email right now. We're going to go to Niles, Michigan, and Dean writes to us. He said, we're getting ready to do a major interior remodel, which includes replacing all the doors. He said, we're trying to control sound between the rooms as we renovate a very old house. Now, the lumber sales guy tells me, I'm better, uh, he goes on, and I'm going to paraphrase, uh, he says, the lumber guy tells me that I'm better off buying a solid wood door over a solid core wood door. I think I understand the difference, but there's a lot of money difference between the doors. Do you have an opinion? Well, first, you've recognized one of the differences, Dean, and that is there is a great deal of money. And for our listeners, I think what you're trying to distinguish between when you say, a solid wood door over a solid core wood door. I'm assuming that when you reference a solid wood door, it is what in the industry we would call a, a solid wood stave door, meaning it is solid wood components. And they're fit together in the typical mortise and, and tenon fashion, tongue and groove, various other things that door panels are made up to be, unless it's just a flush door these days. But that is just what it sounds like. It is all wood components. And when you deal with that, you're dealing with the natural wood product itself versus a solid core door, which is one that may have a veneer. It may have an oak veneer. It can still have cherry. It can have any type of hardwood on the exterior. It could be a luon. But the core to that door is made up largely of solid or wood products, byproducts, that are put together almost like a particle board. Now, both will offer great sound control for you. Typically, the solid core door 
will cost considerably less than the solid wood door because it's not made from 100% solid wood products. It's made from a lot of wood byproducts with a frame around it and then a veneer on the exterior. What I would suggest you do, because from one manufacturer to another, and there are hundreds, and I mean this literally, hundreds of door manufacturers across the United States, I would suggest that you get the spec data on the doors that you are considering. They should all offer you several things in terms of performance, their resistance to warpage, also their resistance to moisture. They should give you a sound transmission rating on those as well. So if sound is extremely important to you, and as you renovate this house, you're putting sound barriers or added insulation within certain walls, then the door could be equally important. I don't want to tell you you want to buy this just on price, but what you've identified is correct. A solid wood door will cost you a good deal more than a solid core wood door since you have some sound needs Read the data sheets on them. You especially want to look at the sound transmission rating on them. And you also want to be sure that that you're being quoted the same size. Doors come in inch and three-eighths and inch and three-quarters as a standard. Normally, we see an inch and three-quarters on our exterior doors, inch and three-eighths on the inside. That doesn't mean you can't put inch and three-quarter on the inside. So do your homework, and you'll make the right decision. Is that a real word, warpage? Absolutely. They'll, they'll put it in the spec sheets. Okay. Never, it just sounds like something out of Star Wars, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> yep. we got some warpage issues here. Yep, we do. All right. Phone lines are open. If you've got a question for Ken, it's 800-614-2975. And Bill joins us right now. He's got a question for Ken Patterson, Ken the contractor. Bill, go right ahead with your question. Ken, I've got a uh, summer cottage that I want to replace the water heater in, and I want to make it a tankless water heater. And I have some questions about um, whether whether it's the right thing to do, whether it'll work. Uh, just, uh, it's a summer cottage that I'm only in for about three months a year during the summer. Uh, the water's kind of hard, and basically I drain the... Uh, the whole water system at the end of the summer when I leave. And I just wonder if I'm going to encounter any problems. Possibly, but the same problems from one statement you said that you would encounter with a hot water heater, you may encounter with an on-demand unit. The fact that you're using this only three months out of the year, I'm not sure, in my opinion and experience, that it would be worth the expense of changing this out because you're there for a set period of time, you turn the water heater on, when you leave, you're not only turning the water heater off, but you're draining all the water from the system. If you need to change out the water heater, though, if it's bad or you're saying, I need to upgrade anyway, and you want to go to a tankless, they work quite well. But you need to have the tankless unit sized to give you the equivalent water, uh, hot water that you're accustomed to having right now. And that's right. a mistake that a lot of folks make is they buy a smaller unit than their needs require, and then they're unhappy because after they run it for two or three minutes, the water gets lukewarm and it moves on down to cold, and they don't have enough for a shower or for washing clothes. So if you do change it, be sure that you talk to the wholesale house or a local engineer and saying, I currently have a 52-gallon water heater. I need the equivalent that handles my one or two bathrooms and my kitchen just fine. Um, and I know that I'm going to have to pay more than the $200 for the under-sink unit. I might have to pay $800 or $1,200. But those are the type of things that I see that are the biggest mistakes folks make. Now, you talked about hard water. Hard water will have a negative impact on your hot water heater just like it will uh, on an on-demand water heater. And, and that's because you have those minerals inside that really are attacking the internal pipes. So the, the best thing you've told me you can do for that is what you're doing is you're draining this. And I assume you're draining the water heater and the pipes when you shut it off for the nine months or so out of the year that you're not there. Yeah, that's right. 
Now, one other thing that you are that you have to be cautious about is your current water heater electric or gas? It's electric. Okay. Then you should not have an issue. But for those listeners that have a gas-fired water heater that would want to change to an electric on demand, you may have to upgrade your electrical service. But chances are pretty good that the same wiring and the same breaker that feeds your water heater would be ample to go to a tankless water heater. So I don't think you'd have that issue to cope with. Okay. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. We appreciate you listening, and thanks for your call. Thanks, Bill. It's amazing the number of questions we get about water heaters. I mean, with of all the shows we do together, I would say that's easily in the top five or six. Well, it probably is, but when you think about it, that's one of the common items that every one of us, I think, if we don't, we should have in our home all across this country. It's not unlike dryers that I talk about occasionally. That is so common to everybody. And there are so many new products out there and different ways to use these, and we use our homes in different ways that there's nothing wrong with exploring these, and folks share new ideas with me, things they have found. One of the things I share with folks on water heaters constantly, and and I just picked this up on my own 30 years ago, is turn the breaker off or put it on a time clock, which we do today, or a particular switch. The breaker's not to be used for a regular switch, but if you're gone for extended periods of time, turn the breaker off to the water heater, because if you're gone for two weeks on vacation, it's just sitting there chewing up energy, and it doesn't need to be. It will create a noticeable savings on your energy cost. But those are little things, and I'm always happy to hear from listeners out there that have found a better way to do the same thing and to save money. But the tankless water heaters really have made a big impression in the market in the last several years. As long as we use them right, it's not unlike a water heater. We can put a 10-gallon water heater in our house that won't do the job when we need a 52 or we need a 60. So it's just a, it's about having it sized for the way we use it. I, I think the... The misapprehension that a lot of folks have about these tankless water heaters, though, is that they're going to get all the hot water they need, and if they end up using it for an hour, because it sounds that on-demand, which, as you mentioned, may not always be the case. If they put one in large enough, they could run it for an hour or two hours and have hot water. But, if you but put one in that's large it. That's what we don't typically do. We right. put one in that gives us hot water at a certain level for three to five, seven minutes, and we're happy with that. That's all we ever do. And then one time we turn it on and we want to use it for 45, doesn't work right. We're coming right back with more of your questions and comments for Ken the Contractor. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Every week at this time, Ken takes your calls, questions, and comments about your home inside or out. You can always reach us at 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. Or forward your questions to our website. And we'll take your emails at kenthecontractor.com. And we should explain, for particularly for some of our newer listeners, that everyone, Ken, who emails a question gets a response uh, between you and our email editor, Aaron Yoder. And then we pull some of the more interesting ones to bring back and to put on the program each week. We do. And sometimes time is a little bit of an issue to us. Today, we want to try and cover as many of these mailbags that I pulled, mailbag questions that I think are of interest to so many more of you than just the person who wrote it. And this next one comes to us from Angie out of Clemson, South Carolina. It said, my husband and I want to install a decorative stack block type retaining wall to level an area in the backyard and create a small patio. Now, our neighbor said he thought a concrete footing would be required. We think we can do the wall work ourselves, but we are not concrete experienced. Is his comment true about a concrete footing? Do we need an engineer? And these are made to look like anyone can do it, but now we're not so sure. Well, I can't blame you, Angie, for having that doubt. First, I want to say that there are dozens today, literally dozens of types of stacked block decorative retaining walls that we use in and around our homes. And we broadcast into so many different states around the country 
that policies, procedures, permit requirements, engineering requirements are going to vary from one state and sometimes from just one city to one county, one locality to the other. So I'm going to preface my statement with this, that regardless of where you live, if you are thinking about installing any type of a stacked box retaining wall that you can do yourself, or even if you need a pro, it doesn't matter, you always want to check with your local building officials and see if a permit's required or if any engineered documents are required. Now, to go back to the question at hand, Angie, most stacked block walls require some type of a foundation. It is rare to almost never that I have had to put stacked walls in place using a concrete footing. Soil conditions may dictate that more than the structural design or the way these blocks interlock. What you will need with almost every system I've seen is you need some type of a stone foundation. And manufacturers have very specific instructions that apply to their block. Don't assume because you used a particular brand three years ago and you're going to a different company in a different thickness that looks lighter to you or interlocks differently that maybe you don't need some type of a foundation. You always want to follow the manufacturer's recommendations of that particular block for the best performance. These are not inexpensive materials, and the labor is not cheap. Even your own time is not cheap in putting into this wall. So always follow their instructions, but you will find in almost every case they're talking about some limited excavation, probably six to eight inches deep, put some type of crushed or compacted stone in there that you would place and then compact with the vibratory compactor, and you can rent that at your local equipment rental company if you're doing this yourself, and then you start your base from there, and typically they want at least one block below grade because that stable soil helps to create a very stable base for this wall as you go up. And whatever you do, follow the directions and instructions, as I've said. You may need an engineer in some locations. I've worked in communities where if the wall exceeds three feet, the building officials require a signed and sealed engineered drawing. Now, a lot of the companies that sell these blocks will also provide you with the engineered detail so you don't have to go to an independent engineer and have that particular wall done. Other systems do not provide that service, in which case you have to go to a local engineering firm and have that service provided. So there's a little more to it than meets the eye when you look at just the sales brochure or the display in the store. But it really can be as simple as I made it sound, and if you're into digging a hole in the ground and and compacting some stone, I don't think you have any issue. If you're really the kind of person that likes to do it yourself, I'd say have at it and enjoy your work. Universal Living this week, we're dealing with doors and doorways. And as I'm finding out, this is becoming a bigger and bigger issue for a lot of folks. Well, Jim, you're not by yourself as I am and many other people. We we not only from time to time have unique needs on our own, but we have family members. And sometimes it's not about health issues. It's about just how we live in our home. We're, we may be moving carts in and out, let's say, of a laundry room to another area. You're saying, I really wish this door was larger than a 2-6 opening, which is only 30 inches. So when we talk about universal living, if you're remodeling, if you're building new, if you have an opportunity simply to change a door opening, you want to relocate it from one, one area in a particular room to another, I want you to think about the size of that. Now, When you are talking about width in a door, if you want to meet a true universal requirement, a stock door for most vendors will be a 3-0, and that's how it's referred to. That's a 36-inch door. Now, once you eliminate the stops that are on either side, you're going to be down, in most cases, to about 35-and-a-half inches clear, and then you've got the door that takes up space, unless it'll open 180 degrees, uh, from the hinges that encroaches. To meet 
ADA requirements. If you're trying to move a wheelchair through someone on a walker that needs to have good, easy access and meet federal regulatory requirements, just to know that you have the same standard, let's say, that public buildings do, you need to have at least a 210 door because that's going to give you a 2-8 opening, a 32-inch net clear opening in your doorway. So think about that. We can't always accommodate a three-foot door based on intersecting walls on one side or the other. But if you have the opportunity, you will find that in most cases, a three-foot door will cost you the same or less money than a 210 because most building supply houses stock 3-0 doors. They don't stock 210s. They typically go 2-6-2-8-3-0, and it's rare that you find a supply house that stocks a 210. So you might think about that 3-0 door. One other thing that's important that makes this not only easy for everyone to operate with, but especially anyone with physical disabilities, and this conforms to ADA criteria, that is that the lever side or the handle side, the knob on your door, have a clearance of at least eight inches from any intersecting wall. And that's because you get jammed into a corner. It's very difficult to reach or to access. And it depends on which side you're accessing that door as to where you need that clearance. The bottom line is there are things you can do that cost absolutely no additional dollar that make it user-friendly for living in your home and for those with special needs. And it makes that home much more desirable for more people when the time comes to sell that house. That's universal living today. Let me ask you a question about that. And I've uh, found it in my parents' house, and I seem to have these maze of doors I have to go through to get into the house. I'm wondering if people are just reevaluating doors per se as to the number of doors because each door at times becomes an issue you may have to deal with. It can be a real obstacle. And what we've seen in some of the retrofits and older homes, older homes tended to be chopped up in a lot of small rooms. You may come out of a hallway with a door that just takes you into the living room. Now, the living room might be open to a dining area, but I'm saying we were known many years ago for just adding a lot of doors. So we're seeing some of those openings modified to just cased openings, takes the, take the door and hinge off altogether if privacy is not an issue, if sound is not an issue. Typically, we're seeing doors in new construction placed in just areas where there's privacy involve bathrooms and bedrooms, for example, or a game room, someplace you want to control sound. But that's one reason I think we see a lot of openness. One, the house is bigger, hallways take up space you can't live in, but the doors can be a real nuisance, especially when you have older homes and they open back against each other. Yeah, you know, you're coming in after the long trip, you got the bags, you got the suitcases, and I got to say, I say some bad words sometimes, dealing with those maze of doors, uh, that the, the fewer doors of the future... I think more folks are going to be very comfortable dealing with that. So doors are a bigger issue than most of us think about. And all you have to do is experience the kind of problem you're discussing once in your life, and you're saying, now I really get this, or be on crutches one time, or just moving something through the house saying, I wish I had another few inches in width on this door to get this box or this dresser through. That wraps up this hour of Ken the Contractor. If you have a question about your home inside or out, you can always reach Ken at 800-614-2975 or online at KenTheContractor.com. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Do you have questions about your home inside or out? KenTheContractor.com is all you need to know. I'm Ken Patterson, Ken the Contractor. Visit KenTheContractor.com for answers to plumbing, fencing, electrical, roofing, painting, heating, fireplaces, decks, and much more. Submit your questions or call anytime. Remember, KenTheContractor.com, where folks come for professional answers.
you've been listening to Ken the Contractor. Every weekend at this time, Ken the Contractor, Ken Patterson is here taking your calls. Don't forget, you can friend Ken on Facebook at Ken the Contractor and follow him on Twitter at Ken Answers. And if you're looking for home improvement information at any time, go to KenTheContractor.com.